social progress has always been won by a few outraged, organized, ordinary people. They weren't born on Mount Olympus. They weren't deputized through some angelic visitation. They were just ordinary, outraged people who decided they had enough of oppression. We don't need any messiahs. We need ordinary, organized, outraged people. We Welcome to Code Red, a limited podcast series from Hope and Hard Pills. In this short episode, Andre speaks with Miriam and Hardy, who are the co-authors of Hold the Line, a guide to defending democracy. Let's get into it. Miriam, Hardy, thanks so much for joining me today. It's good to be here. Happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah, I am super excited to talk with you about Hold the Line, the guide that you've co-written and the trainings that you're doing and and whatnot as we prepare for the next hundred days or so. And I just wondered if you could just comment on why Election Day is not the only thing we should be preparing for (laughs) right now before we get into some of the scenarios that you've outlined and uh, how you're inviting people to engage in this moment. Sure. So, you know, there there are things about this election that are normal and things that are not normal, right? So the normal parts are like, we all got to vote. We all got to get out to vote. You can. Volunteering as a poll worker is a great way to participate or a poll watcher. And then there are the less normal things, right? And so one thing that's not normal is COVID, right? Just start with something not political that's not normal. There are going to be fewer polling places. It's going to be harder for folks to vote. We're going to in person, most likely anyway. That's what we anticipate. There's going to be many mail-in ballots. Those ballots, uh, it looks like, are going to skew very heavily Democratic. And that's important because when we think about election night, that's the night we're used to, you know, having a projection of who the next president will be. But election night is not going to include the tally of a lot of absentee ballots at minimum, right? That assumes that in-person voting goes smoothly everywhere, which we're not sure about. But let's assume it does. Even then, you have absentee ballots that are going to be counted afterwards and that we expect will skew heavily Democratic. So if we think about this for a second, we've got the potential for an election day tally because they just start counting on election day, those absentee ballots in many states that favors Trump. You could declare Mm -hmm. victory. And then mm-hmm. in the coming weeks, the coming days and weeks, everything starts to shift blue and it's a Biden victory. And mm. that sets up uh, the potential for a lot of conflict um, mm-hmm. over the election. And I mean, I will also just add that, I mean, we all know that like Trump has been setting the stage for situations like this to arise. Um, like basically saying that like vote by mail is like fraudulent, that like, you know, setting like having those types of that narrative out there is something that he's essentially prepared everyone for. The reason I also like think that it's not election day, it's election season is because the story that's going to be told is going to take a really, really long time to be told essentially like the actual reality of what's happening is not going to happen in one day. And whatever story goes out is going to be whatever. Like, I mean, I know like Hardy, you do like a lot of research like around coups and around like, you know, how authoritarian takeovers happen. And I think Mm -hmm. some of your research says that what happens within the first 48 hours 
basically will de- like will determine how things move forward forward. Basically, like the type of narrative that starts off in the first like 48 hours in our country right now is what's going to set the stage for what story is what and what narrative starts moving through like the next couple months. And so we want to get that head start, obviously. And we also want to have that momentum to keep up the energy to get that the reality of the story going until Inauguration Day, because Trump's getting ready to do that anyways. Yeah, I want to I want to lean in to what you're bringing up there, Miriam, because there's a lot of people who seem to feel like what you just mentioned, an authoritarian takeover, a coup is just that it can't happen here in America. And uh, some of us are hearing the president say things like, well, we'll see if I'll leave office peacefully or not. And taking that very seriously and others are not. You know, personally, I'm like, well, I underestimated Donald Trump in 2016, so I'm not going to do that again. (laughs) Should we be taking him seriously at, you know, when he says these things? Is it that unlikely that it could happen here in America? Yeah, well, I think there's this thing that a lot of people in the United States think of, and it's like American exceptionalism. Like we constantly think that that our democracy is completely perfect. The way things are executed is always perfect. There's, you know, the corruption cannot exist in the government. Like it doesn't actually exist. Like that type of stuff happens in other countries and other parts of the world. And I think that we have to come to terms with the fact that we are not immune to the realities of corruption. There is like this responsibility upon like the people to make sure democracy is actually upheld that we need to start exercising and also take ownership over and really like embrace the power that we actually have. Yeah. Like, and so I, I think, I think part of it does come from that, um, at least from like the places where I grew up from and like the, the experiences that I've just seen um, growing up here, there is this sense of like the United States, like this could never happen here, but it can definitely happen in other countries where like the news cut essentially like vilifies other countries, democracies and movements. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I would add, and I'll just mention, I was, I'm speaking my personal independent capacity here. Um, just as myself, but um, it absolutely can happen here. Mm-hmm. There's not a country in the world that thought, <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, where where it happened and where there wasn't a significant amount of people ahead of time where it was like, no, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Democracy has been backsliding around the world for 14 years, mm-hmm. 14 consecutive years. It's the biggest contraction of democracy and rise of authoritarianism we've seen since easily the 1970s. 14 mm-hmm. years of declines. Hmm. And in so many places, quote unquote, no one saw it coming or few people saw it coming. It can absolutely happen here. We have a very imperfect democracy in the United States. We know that. Mm-hmm. We know that the benefits of that democracy are unevenly distributed. We know government is not always accountable. We know that people experience a functional form of authoritarianism at times in the mm-hmm. United States. All that is true. And yet we are not fully an authoritarian society in any shape of the word. Mm-hmm. We are more democratic than we are authoritarian when you compare us with other countries. That's something worth protecting, as imperfect as it is. Donald Trump has an authoritarian style. It's Mm -hmm. a style I recognize from years of work in this field. He he plays it to the hilt. I know who he admires. I know who he listens to because he tells you who he admires. It's clear. You can see the company that he keeps. The authoritarian personality, when it gets into leadership, it's not appeased. It is not. When it gets what it wants, it's emboldened. When it, mm. when it rolls over norms and gets its way, it doesn't stop. There's no part of that personality that says, I think I've had enough. They keep playing offense. And so the question is not so much, what will Donald Trump try to do? 
you could say, well, I, I think it's unlikely. Well, unlikely is still pretty scary. What's unlikely? Mm. 20%? Oh, it's only 20% chance of <laughs> the election results. Well, we're going to have to prepare for that. Right. Or it's 70% or it's 100%. But regardless, the question is not what's he going to try to do. The question is, can we constrain him? Because right. if institutions can't constrain him, we, the people, have to. And you know what we say in Hold the Line is we can do it through nonviolent resistance, which is something we've done in this country before. Okay, I, I have to ask this question as you make that point, because what I hear is a lot of people speaking with resignation about the potential of civil war in this country coming, or speaking as though whatever happens over the next, gosh, how many days do we have left now? 21? <laughs> the, next, the next month or the next 100 days, as though, yeah, they're going to get away with it. Right. As they speak of the powers that be, what you both have alluded to is that, you know, the people can constrain what the powers do through nonviolent struggle. There seems to be this assumption that the only way to fight fascism, authoritarianism is with a greater force of violence. Is that true? A few things. Initially, Andre, you talked about the sense of resignation that people have. Mm-hmm. And it may be resignation, it may be disorientation and confusion. Like he's going to do yeah. it, it's not right, but what do we do? Right. And for the authoritarian, they love to sow confusion and they love to sow a sense of hopelessness. It's a very deliberate strategy. They present themselves as invulnerable and invincible. And they try to really, I, I call it sort of a form of psychological warfare on the public. Hmm. Make the public feel scared and confused and distracted and exhausted. It is not accidental if you are feeling that way about our politics. I assure you, it is deliberate. Mm-hmm. Because part of what happens is it takes confidence. When things are backsliding to say, that's it, we've crossed a line, I'm going to take action. And so when you're not confident, what do you do? You start looking to others. You look to others, see what they're doing. Maybe someone can validate my idea. Maybe that's a problem because if everyone's looking to someone else to lead, then right. you have a lot of confusion. It's a little bit like at an accident scene, unless someone is trained to know how to decisively take action at that accident, you might have a lot of people staring, not knowing what to do. Mm-hmm. And so part of what we need to do is instill confidence in people. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be the perfect strategist. But in Hold the Line, we're like, look, we've got some lines that we need to draw in our communities to say, if the, if the votes are not counted, if people cannot vote, if irregularities happen and they're not investigated, if the results are not respected, we're drawing those lines and we're going to hold them and we're going to have a strategy to hold them. And it's really important to do that because otherwise the line just keeps moving. And with regards to the question of violence, you know, my read of authoritarians around the world is they generally prefer a violent opposition. In Mm. fact, one of their biggest strategies is to provoke violence, because when that happens, it puts the whole, when they're successful at provoking violence, it puts the conflict on their turf. That's a turf Mm -hmm. where they have an advantage. I won't run down all the things that happen, but in general, but it, it's it's basically the power of civil resistance is the ability to impose social, economic, political costs through strikes, boycotts, non-cooperation in ways that the authoritarian does not know how to respond to. Do you want to add anything, Miriam? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, um, if we're going to, it's the whole idea of, of like manifestation, like what you are putting out in the world is really going to happen. And so if, that's, if what we're putting out in the world is that Trump is going to let us, is going to bully his way through this election, is going to cheat his way through this election, we're just going to hand him like the power, then yeah. that is, that's what's going to happen. And so I, I, I really believe in like envisioning the most positive of futures, yeah. imagining what liberation can actually look like. And that includes 
imagining beyond what the box, like the boxes that we're looking at right now. And so yeah. in this moment, yeah, we're going to feel like the media does a really great job of reinforcing Trump's narrative. And so we need to really look to our communities and to each other and to our conversations and, and like the energy that we have to really beat that narrative and like get that energy from there. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. All right. So the name of the guide is Hold the Line. What are the lines that we're holding? Yeah. So essentially, there's like three there's three lines. The first one is that all um, votes must be counted. And they must be counted um, fairly. The second one is that if there's any like incident of fraud or any type of voter suppression, then those incidents need to be investigated impartially and, and very quickly. And then the third one is that if, um, regardless of what the election results are, regardless of who wins, making sure that that person is the next person who transitions into power. Mm. Those are essentially the three like lines that we outline in the guide. Mm-hmm. And there's like more details in the guide on how you can start looking in your community on a local level to see where those lines are being crossed. Because the United States like election system is very complicated. Things are very different county by county. The process is very different county by county. And so it's kind of hard to tell, like, is the line actually being crossed right now? Yes, there will be like a national moment where we can connect the dots, but What we want to emphasize in the guide is that that time might also just be a little too late, too. You need to be preparing right now, watching for those lines. And local action is what is going to be the difference between holding the lines and essentially like letting those lines go. So we, we outline the three lines to hold. And then we also go into what the everyday person can do on the ground to take action. The first step is really just convening people gathering together in itself is an act of resistance. Building that community is like the first step in like actually preparing us both to watch for these lines and then also to participate in nonviolent civil resistance when that time comes. The second thing is really doing your research. We in the guide, we have like a, like a list of power holders. The place that you live, the county that you live, we live in LA County, Literally Googling each person in L.A. County, like who is in the on the election commission, who is the board of supervisors, figuring out all of those details is really important for each person to start understanding what is the lay of the land? Like, where does the power exist and how can I influence it to make sure that we hold those lines? So how can I influence the board of elections to make sure that they commit to counting every vote? That if there are incidents of fraud, that they investigate it ASAP, without delay, and impartially. That's the second step, doing your research, figuring out who has the power in your area. And then the third is mapping it out. So this is the fun part. Like, I'm I'm an organizer, and my favorite part is really power mapping. Power mapping is basically when you throw all the power players on a map, you figure out who has the power, you do some research to figure out who knows who, and then you identify that one target that you're going to put all your energy into to get what your community needs. Mm-hmm. I really encourage for whoever's listening, like this is actually a really fun activity, um, <laughs> like doing the research. It's a life skill. <laughs> it's <laughs> it a is. life skill. <laughs> it, is. it is a life skill. You know, you want to get that raise? Do a little <laughs> <laughs> Um, But yeah, so that's, I would say that's like the third step, doing your research, creating your power map with your people, with your team, 
And then after that, you can then determine once you know who your target is and once you know who the person is um, that you need to hold accountable, it's a lot easier from there. You can figure out like how to hold how to hold them accountable. We just came out with a public commitments campaign, which is like one strategy that you all can use um, where you publicly ask people to commit to making sure every single voters count. You publicly ask elected officials, you publicly ask people, armed agents, so like the, the military in your state, police officers in your state to commit to nonviolence. You can have these public commitments as a strategy, as, as a tactic um, to make sure that, you know, we hold the lines. And then last step is, you know, you escalate. And in our guide, escalation looks like nonviolent civil resistance. It looks like you going out with your people into the streets. If we were just to imagine, like if each person is doing this in each county, like the power is amazing. An authoritarian or or Trump has limited resources. He only has a certain number of people, like a certain number of officers to send to a certain state and like, you know, impose his power in a certain area. He can't do that in every single county. And so if, if we follow these steps, if we're really strategic and smart, that number overpowers whatever ridiculous show of a ridiculous abuse of power he decides to use like in, in like um, November. I talked a lot. <laughs> Sorry, do you want to add anything? <laughs> I would elaborate one thing um, Mariam said, and that is about the commitment to uphold democracy campaign that we plan that we released. There are now a number of campaigns around the country around getting commitments from elected officials on making sure votes are counted and and the results are respected. And one thing that we really felt strongly about adding was uh, making demands of police and military, chiefs of police, sheriffs, uh, officers in the National Guard. Then in those commitments, and I want to I want to say them, um, I'll paraphrase them here. But the first is a reaffirmation of their respect for the First Amendment. Yeah. And the First Amendment includes pro- rights of protest and and to re- redress of grievances from the government. And so to reaffirm <laughs> that they respect that. And then the second is that to affirm that they have a responsibility to protect people exercising their constitutional right of their First Amendment, mm. of the First Amendment to protest. They have a responsibility to protect people mm. who are doing that from armed groups that show up. Because we need to make it very clear, right. like the, the armed groups that are showing up are not there the ones, they're not the ones keeping order. They're actually the ones who are escalating and creating potential for chaos. And it's, it's you know, police chiefs and others need to be put on the spot to reaffirm the fact that they have responsibility to protect people when those people show up. And, and we also ask that they reaffirm simply their oath of the Constitution, which is a sworn oath of their office. And lastly, that they commit to not issuing or obeying any illegal or or unconstitutional orders. Mm. Now, something that you mentioned a little bit earlier was that through nonviolent civil resistance, we could make these power holders refusal to uphold these promises if they make them or whether they make them or not, we could make it kind of expensive for them to do that. And I'm wondering what kinds of things could we do in the event that say, you know, the police chief in LA County where Miriam and I are, you know, says, yeah, I'll uphold the Constitution. But when it comes down to it, the vigilantes come out uh, with their guns and the police don't stop them, don't arrest them or whatever. How could we respond with civil resistance to that kind of situation? Or if it's made clear that, you know, Trump has not won the the election, but he declares victory anyway and says that he doesn't want to leave office. What kind of civil resistance response do you think 
we could do that would be effective? Well, with regards to the first scenario, to some extent, there's always a local element, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, if you want to put economic pressure on a particular official, you need to know where their economic interests are. So there could be like, perhaps the power holder also has a business. That would be, no, that's like a pressure point right there. You can get into a very micro level of like, who are their friends and associates? Like, how do they feel and see, you know, you can exert social pressure in that way. The other thing is I, I firmly believe that one of the best ways to deter repression is to make it backfire. It doesn't always work, but that when repression backfires, they're less likely to use it again. Mm. Um, but that usually means you have to go through it once fo for it to backfire for them to get that lesson. And so some of the things that make repression backfire more is to understand that the authorities, when they do it, have a five-step process to try to inhibit outrage. The first is to not deny it ever happened. The second is to devalue the victim. The third is to claim that it was a mistake or just a few bad apples, or it wasn't really that bad what we did. The fourth is to launch a quote, like investigation of it, but it's a very close investigation that only a few people can really access. And then after that long investigation's over, they hope outrage has subsided. And the fifth, when those don't work, is bribes and intimidation. Mm. That's a standard playbook for authorities to inhibit outrage, not in virtually everywhere. It's, it's authoritarian. And so what's the, what's the counter to that? Well, one is expose the injustice. Two is value the victim. Yeah. Uh, three is, is reinterpret the whole thing as a systemic injustice, not just a few bad apples. Fourth is keep the heat on in terms of public pressure when they go into, okay, we'll launch an official investigation. Whether you participate in that or not, the key thing is that public attention stays on that so that it doesn't just winnow away. And then the fifth is that when they try to do bribes or intimidation, it expose those. And so if you go in there with the playbook of knowing what they're going to do and how they're going to try to interpret things and win the media battle afterwards, you have a much better chance of making it backfire. It's not always going to happen. But those five steps I listed are things that I think any community can quickly, there's nothing academic or like particularly sophisticated about it. Right. It's just like, it's actually when you list them as common sense, you know, you don't have to be an expert. You're like, yeah, I get it. And so those are all things that I think everyone should know, frankly. Oh, I was just going to add, I think this whole process is an iterative process with, with like organizing um, and like civil resistance. It doesn't just happen in a couple of days and then it happen just a couple of months. People try a strategy. It works. It doesn't work. They come back to the table. They re-optimize. They troubleshoot. You're constantly coming back to the table. So for people who are like new to doing this, like one thing that I do want to just say is it's okay if it doesn't work out the first time. Like if the power holder does not listen to your demand the first time, it's okay. And it might even be a little bit normal. And so it's really important to understand that like it takes time um, and just testing out like just the will to test out a bunch of different things to see what's what type of tactic is really going to work what type of messaging is like going to work out in this area and the more and more you do it the better you'll get at it and the stronger you'll be and the stronger your community will be and then the stronger your democracy will be <laughs> <laughs> um so i wanted to ask you too because i've been recommending the hold the line guide every excuse that i have is like please read this Please start a, a group because what I appreciated about the guide is that um, it's very practical. It breaks down like here are some sample meeting agendas that you can have. Here's how you put a group together. Here's some conversations that you should you know consider having and whatnot. 
And so some of the feedback that I've gotten from people that I've recommended it to are, you know, they're saying, well, I'm having trouble getting past the barrier that we talked about earlier of people just feeling like they don't know how seriously to take the possibility that, you know, the president might declare victory too early or declare victory inappropriately or just try to stay in office. Right. And so they've been asking me, well, how do you how do you talk to someone who is reluctant to plan or prepare? Because not not just the people who feel like it's impossible, but even the people who feel like, well, it's unlikely or, you know, it's like they're waiting for it to happen. To, they want to cross that bridge when we get there. Have you encountered some folks that you've had to do a little bit of selling the idea of preparation to? And what seems to kind of work for you? I I like to talk about it as an insurance policy for folks. Again, it's to reorient people in their own power. Like the media will constantly keep us wondering what Trump's going to do. And what's the latest outrage? And my gosh, did he say that? Look at what he tweeted. Wait, who has COVID in the White House? And on and on and on. We have 22 days, and let's be clear. The, in my opinion, the next 100 days are some of the most important in the history of this country. Yes. And, and so as goes the United States, so goes a big portion of the world. So this, the stakes could not be higher. This is, we, I'm absolutely serious about this. And so with 22 days, you know, we don't have the luxury of having a year to prepare. We can make the perfect, uh, the, the perfect insurance policy. But I'll tell you, if I already know who I'm voting for at this point, and of course I do, and if you other people know who they're voting for, and the media is not going to sway you one way or another, sure, watch it a little bit just to keep track. But focus your energies on your assets. Focus your energies on your community. Focus your energies on what the, what this is going to mean for you if things start to go in an you know in the direction of subversion. And you know when, and I'll give you an example of how how powerful that's been for me. I mean, four months ago. I didn't know Mariam. I didn't know Kifa. I didn't know Ankur, my Hold the Line co-author. We came together after Trump ordered uh, the military to attack nonviolent protesters in Lafayette Square on June 1st. And so by the end of June, we met, but I didn't know them, you know, when, when that happened in early June. And look at what we did. When we first started collaborating, we thought we were going to maybe release like an article. We set the bar low. We're all really busy. But through working together, we produced something that was greater than something that any of us would have imagined at the outset. And so the thing for people is to take that first step. You don't need to find the perfect group to form an election protection team. You need to find people you care about and trust. And that's how I think about it. And one other thing I'll say is that some people will also say, well, I'm in a state where I have confidence that the election will be administered well. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. That's great. <laughs> you still may want to watch your public officials. But the other thing, is, let's not forget there's other forms of power here. So every state, whether blue or red, has really powerful corporations in it. And money talks, and that can send a message big time. There are plenty of power grabs that have been stopped because business, through strikes or through other means, you know, sent a message. And so the business community is going to be very important, and businesses are in every state. And can play a role. So I guarantee if we think with a group, we're going to find potential leverage points that could be quite important. I love that you're talking about, you know, finding leverage points and all this kind of stuff, because I think what is instinctual for much of us in America is uh, protest and we heavily rely on protest. There are more forms of resistance than protest, and we need to lean into those in this moment, especially. Because what I can imagine is that regardless of who 
seems to be in the lead on election night, there's going to be a large portion of the population that's going to be unhappy. So people are going to be in the streets. Could you talk about what other tools we have other than kind of rallying together in the streets? Yeah, I think one of the the things that we also emphasize in the guide is that like every single person has a role to play like in this whole process. You don't have to be the person who's at the front of the the, the marching line, you know, holding holding the sign and all of that. Like to to actually be engaging in this process, it's not just coming out on the streets. People like the organizations that organize the protest, they need money. If there's like a situation where there is violence and like we need to protect our people, medical safety is going to be needed. People who have influence and like have like relationships with like certain like power holders, like simply picking up the phone to talk to them and using that influence is like another way to do that as well. Like even like talking to someone and engaging them on the voting process itself and setting setting them on like a path to be engaged every year after that is also another step in the process. My parents like are immigrants to the United States. And like, I grew up in a community where literally like, the aunties and uncles of our community, like no one is registered to vote at all. It's like the kids every now and then will like try to register their parents. The simple act of me registering my mom's friends is going to build power for my, like the, the Pakistani Muslim community in Gardena in, in, in the South Bay in Los Angeles County. I remember a couple of years ago where like none of the aunties and uncles were registered. I mean, their kids like grew up a little bit and learned about voter registration, probably through school or something. And now I'm seeing like all of these like people coming to the polls for the first time, literally like taking that one step and engaging someone, I think is really important in setting people up, like setting your community up for success in the long term. So, I mean, like protest is one thing and it's very important. It's a really useful strategy, but like long term construction of like building power for your people is tiny little baby steps that are not super like, you know, super sexy or whatever, but they are extremely important. Like that's a brick right there, like building the house. Yeah, that's how I take it. (laughs) Yeah, and I would add to that that, you know, I mean, the strike and the boycott, I mean, particularly the general strike is like often the strongest weapon that a nonviolent movement wields, but it's also not an on and an off switch, right? So things build towards a general strike. Something might start with a protest, escalate somewhere to something else, build towards it. Boycotts are incredibly powerful. Acts of non-cooperation, which don't necessarily require a lot of risk. If I know the right products that I, I don't want to buy, because that's going to send a message. You frankly, if I'm walking around the store, you can't even tell I'm participating in the boycott. But it sends a powerful message. And so there are these big tactics that get built and used. And then there are all these little micro tactics, kind of like Marian was talking about. And those you can't predict. Those emerge. So if you get 100 people in the room, you don't really know who you have in the room. You don't know what talents they have. You don't know what networks they have. You don't know who, who their roommate was or who they, you know, their uncle or aunt is or whatever. But that stuff becomes really important. And that's a numbers game. That's a game of probabilities. You have tens of thousands of people who are all you know, fairly united on something. You have no idea the creativity and power that that can unleash in ways that you cannot be predicted and cannot be planned, but is actually incredibly powerful. Because I will guarantee you, within that group, virtually everyone is one degree removed from who you want to influence. There's at least one person who is one degree removed. To get like the numbers out in, in terms of like 
in terms of mass resistance in response to whatever scenario could happen. I think each of us has to be ready to really look within ourselves to to be like the activist. I think a lot of times the average like there's there's like a lot of activists in the United States, but there's also like not. There's everyday people trying to go to work, trying to, you know, trying to survive and they're just trying their best. And I think one message that I just want to send to anyone who's listening, you don't have to have like this super intense training or experience to be an activist or an organizer. You literally taking that step to Google who the county sheriff is, it's step one in you actually doing that. You taking the step to call your best friend and get them on a Zoom call so you can read the whole the line guide together and figure out what you all want to do is literally step one of being like the activist and you've already become one. And so I think that there's like this high bar for some reason that has been set of like, I'm not an activist, they're activists. You are an activist, you know, like you are someone who has the power to influence this democracy and you should. The way things play out impacts your everyday life, like how much money gets onto your paycheck, like how much food lands on your table, how much pollution is in the community that you live in and is affecting your health. Like we all, we already know that it impacts us. One thing that I also like to say is I think the one problem that we've just had is we're very passive. We, we frame things as like, I just have low health outcomes or I just don't have access to this. No, somebody made an active decision to take that resource away from you. Someone made that decision to take away your family's health. They like someone actually did that. And so knowing that for me, it really motivated me to really like essentially become an organizer because realizing that it's not actually my fault that like my family grew up in this way and we struggled and we were stressed out. It's actually not our fault. We were attacked, you know? And so knowing that was so important in me, like really being willing to do anything. And so I, I just want other people to hear that too, that like the, the situation that you're in, it's not your fault. We are in a very, like, the United States is not perfect right now. A lot of people are suffering and it's not your fault. And it is somebody else's fault. And to take ownership over your life again, this is step one. Becoming that activist, taking ownership over your democracy and actually recognizing, wait, I actually can pull the strings here. Like, I have the power to influence this government that is taking my life away from me. That's just something that I want to send out there into the world, whoever wants to listen to it, because... Understanding that logic was so important for me. And I really think that that is one of the reasons why a lot of people don't act is because it is this self-victimization that we're dealing with or like, you know, not recognizing that there is this like other like system that we even have power over. So, yeah. (laughs) I really appreciate that, Mariam. I think that's going to be, I think that's going to inspire a lot of people. Hardy, did you have anything you want to add? I think Mariam just said it so beautifully. The job of the activist is one of the most important jobs. In, in the world. The job of the organizer is one of the most important jobs in the world. This has been true in our country for hundreds of years. It's true around the world, and it's true right now. I, I agree with Mar- what Mariam said completely. If you have an image in your mind that an activist has to be a person leading a protest, expand your concept of what an activist could be. Yes, we need those people to, to be on the front lines, absolutely. But activism can take many forms. All of us have talents. All of us have things we can contribute. All of us need to step, take that first step, especially now, and move ahead with confidence because this is our country and democracy is worth fighting for. The Constitution is worth fighting for. 
And making this country better is absolutely worth fighting for. And our tools to do that historically have been nonviolent um, and have yielded good things. And we are in a historic moment now. So we have we have no choice. We must rise to it. Well, thank you, Miriam. Thank you, Hardy, for spending this time with us. I'm going to make sure that the link for the Hold the Line guide is in the show notes. Um, and also, I know that there's information about how people can be trained as well, if they'd like to, on the site. And in the guide, there's so much practical information. But I uh, just want to thank you again for taking some time to share about what you're working on and how you're inviting us into this fight for freedom in our country. A quick note for all you wonderful listeners. The Code Red episodes of Hope and Hard Pills will be released as they are created. We know there is not much time before the election, so please consider sharing this wherever you are able. You can find more information at holdthelineguide.com and check out the conversation on Twitter and Instagram at The Red Line Guide. We share this direct contact information as there is another effort called Hold the Line by a personality from California who is not associated with this effort. Be well, friends, and stay vigilant.